You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Hi, I'm Des Trainer. For this episode, I'm joined by Brian Balfour, VP of Growth at HubSpot. And Brian is a writer, speaker, and advisor on all matters relating to growth. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, for the sake of our listeners, could you define how you see a growth team within a company, specifically how it's distinct from, say, the concerns of the product team or the marketing team? So I think, like, uh, it's interesting you asked this as the first question, right? Like, this is a very controversial, I think, like, meaty question right now. Uh, and I'll be the first to admit that I think a super well-defined answer is is still developing in our in- industry because you look around and everyone has like a little bit different definitions. Uh, different growth teams work on different stuff. They're organized differently. They have different skill sets. And so there isn't really one size fits all answer and nor I think should there be one. So before I give where my opinion is, um, let me take like a quick step back, which is um, I think we should think about and what a lot of people should be thinking about, like what has changed kind of in software and technology and why has like quote unquote growth kind of become a thing anyways. And I think there's three really key things. Um, the first is like in software, the lines between where marketing ends and product begins have really started to blur, especially with the amount of new platforms like the Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest uh, and the amount uh, those kind of both help you with acquisition as well as integrate into your product and, and as well as a number of other things. I think the second thing is marketing, quote unquote, has become way more technical and way more data driven as software in the internet ecosystem has sort of developed. And I think to continue to succeed, I think we're going to have to keep pushing down that technical and quantitative path for a lot of marketing efforts. I think the third thing is that the scale and speed of growth is accelerating, right? Um, the, the time from zero to one million users in the B2C space has massively massively accelerated. Even the time in the B2B space to go from like one or zero to one million ARR has also uh, massively accelerated. And so I think if like people agree with those three things, then it starts to lead to a lot of questions and conclusions about, you know, is the process, the people and the team and the org structure um, that we've used historically, uh, is that the right model? Or does it start to need to look a little bit differently? Um, and it also helps explain a lot of the friction most organizations experience. Uh, you know, the most notable one, you know, the friction between marketing and engineering, where marketing is always begging engineering for support to get things done, and it's really hard to get that done. So it, I think I've always tried to say growth is about not about like the terminology or the tactics. It's much more about a change in our, menta- in our mentality, process, and team of how we grow a software in, in tech companies. So with all that being said, like that background, I think here's my current definition fits. There are three things that ultimately you need to grow. The first is you really need to build core product value. You need to solve like a real uh, problem and, and build an amazing product, right? And product clearly owns this piece of the pie. Uh, a growth team should not be working on building that core value. The second really thing you need to grow is basically getting the largest percentage of your target audience to experience that core value as quickly as possible. And so I say growth owns most of that number two. The pieces I wouldn't put in that bucket are anything that would be kind of considered the soft elements of marketing, branding, PR, uh, buzz, right? Those things I consider in marketing outside of growth. The third piece we really need to grow is uh, get them to experience that core value as often as possible. And this is where I think it's kind of a mix between growth and product and where the lines are a little uh, are especially unclear. And so 
Uh, how this plays out in sort of an exact team structure is going to vary widely depending on your business model, your customer acquisition channels, your company culture, and overall strategy. Um, but a few ways that it's sort of played out today is that um, you see in like B2C companies like Facebook and Uber, um, uh, uh, growth will have full ownership over uh, an entire product that they're ready to throw more fuel onto the fire. The latest example is the growth team at Facebook taking over Messenger. Uh, the core product team got it to product market fit. They were ready. They had really developed some core value, and they really needed to figure out how to grow it. Growth team got in there, started to grow that thing like crazy. The second way that this plays out is that you kind of have growth as a service model, or, or almost they almost act as either consultants or uh, um, sort of an independent SWAT team that basically looks at where the biggest friction is in the growth model, and they kind of jump in and apply their process and their skill sets to solving that problem. Um, and then the third model that you often see is is kind of a hybrid in that, where um, where in like a lot of B two C companies, you'll see kind of the growth team own the quantitative and tech pieces of marketing, such as high scale SEO, email push, stuff like that, as well as major pieces of the product that heavily touch the growth, such as uh, onboarding or new user experience or referral or virality. So I think in summary, like I just always try to come back to the fundamentals about those three things, about building core product value, getting the target audience to experience that core value as quickly as possible, and getting them to experience that core value as often as possible, and layering that with kind of where you're at as a company and customer acquisition channels, culture, and strategy to figure out exactly kind of what the right model of growth is for your company. Right. Do you, th do you think people can occasionally adapt it to wherever their problems are? Like if, if your onboarding sucks, that's a great thing, a great area for the growth team to start. Whereas if your onboarding is pretty good, but your engagement or your stickiness is pretty bad, then you, do you think it ends up being like they – like the company will ultimately deploy the growth team to work on wherever their biggest challenges slash low hanging fruit is. I think, especially in the early days, like when you know when you get really developed, like you know a large team like a uh, like an Airbnb or an Uber or stuff, you have full time teams dedicated to each one of these areas. There is a full time sort of onboarding and new user experience team, right? And because at that size and at that scale. Uh, and at that, you know, at that company size, right, that makes sense. Uh, um, but I think like in the earlier days, what you really find is like, you've got, you, you can't have dedicated teams to all of that stuff. And so what you end up with is basically kind of like this, uh, uh almost like the SWAT model where they do look at sort of the biggest friction in the funnel, uh, and, and, and they're deployed, uh, to sort of that area. Now, there's some pros and cons to that. Model. There's pros and cons to all of these situations, right? And the con, the big cons in sort of this situation is that you end up sometimes crossing ownership lines and working on um, other pieces that other teams feel like you know they quote unquote own. And you've got to facilitate that conversation and how that works kind of culturally within your company. Now, the pro part of this obviously is that um, uh, the pro part of this is that the growth team can kind of remain sort of independent. They don't take on things that acquire technical debt. They can run a really rapid experimentation process uh, uh, without taking on a lot of that stuff. So uh, there's there's pros and cons to all of these models for sure. And it, well, like I said, it really depends on where you're at a, as a company in terms of a stage right, and right. strategy and all those things. 
Interestingly, a lot of the uh, most popular growth stories, uh, the ones you read about or like the sort of famous ways big companies got their first users, they all seem to focus on a particular like a particular hack, trick, tactic. Is that what growth teams should spend their time finding? I think unfortunately like way too much time is spent writing and reading and you know thinking about those things. And so uh, and so like I often phrase this as like I often get a lot of emails from from companies saying like what is like the one thing that well the one little tactic that you know I should do to grow my business and my response to them always is oh one I don't know right because uh, you know I don't know anything about your audience or your product or your business model or, or any of that stuff so for me to try to prescribe a single tactic to you is like impossible. And, and secondly, like you need a way to discover those things on your own. Right. And, um, and so what I really try to focus teams on that I work with is focusing much more on the process. What is, what, what is, what is your process and mentality to, um, basically taking ideas, prioritizing them efficiently, testing them efficiently, learning as much as you can from them, and then feeding the learning back into uh, sort of the process of your prioritization. Because if you really focus on those fundamentals um, and, and getting really good at that process, that process will guide you to a collection of, of, uh, of tactics that kind of, uh, you know, kind of start, you know, informing, informing your strategy uh, over the long term, right? And so, um, so I really try to focus people on saying, don't, don't focus on all of these tactics out there. Um, you're just going to end up basically thrashing in all these different directions and really focus on sort of that process of, 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 you know, building these things from the ground up and, and validating them for, for you and you specifically. Aside from like tactic chasing, I guess, or trying to find whatever your equivalent of like the mythical like Dropbox invite a friend thing or whatever, are there other obvious mistakes that you see growth teams making? Yeah. I mean, I think, one of the biggest ones uh, is kind of like the shotgun scatter sh shot approach, right? And so, what our team does is, uh, um, what, what I see a lot is people don't know what will work, and so therefore they decide I'm going to try everything at once, right? And and basically that's kind of like a, a, a recipe for 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 failure, right? You're just going to get nowhere, right? And so we spend a big recommendation I spend say is. You spend some time in what I call a zoom out phase, basically looking at sort of uh, uh, your growth model, a mixture of quantitative and qualitative data, as well as sort of mixing in your own insight and really figuring out what is the highest impact area that you can focus on right now, given limited resources, right? I mean, HubSpot is a, is a, a, a public company now with like a billion and a half market cap or, or, or whatever it is, right? A thousand people in the company and and it's, even then, like my team has limited time and people and money. So like that constraint never goes away. And so you've got to get really, really good at basically choosing what, uh, what is the highest impact area that you can focus on right now and really nail it, really dig deep because to make really meaningful progress, I think really takes, requires focus and, and going deep. Right. So, um, and so one way I always say this is that I think in a lot of cases, order of operations does matter, uh, um, especially in highly competitive like startup spaces. Do you mean like the specific order in which you pick your projects? Yeah, like yeah. It, it's uh, you know like it's it's one of these things like um, you could feel the heat of of uh, 
you, you need to you feel like you need to scale up you know acquisition in a in a in a given channel because you know one of your competitors seems to be acquiring a bunch of channels but you might have a bunch of retention problems right well you know you probably only have enough resources to work on retention or scaling up acquisition well you scale up acquisition before you fix that retention problem you're leading yourself to nowhere anyways and you might not know like that competitor problem might not have great retention either right so kind of ignore like all that kind of stuff and really focus on where you can have the highest impact in in your model today um, and think about it not just in the short term but in, in in the long term so like when my team looks at growth models and stuff we drag that growth model out a year two years in advance to see like if we made this change on this piece of of the funnel in the next three months what effect does that have over the next year to two compared to all of the other things on our list because um, you know, certain things do have, you know, bigger impact over a longer period of time than they do in the short term. And so you got to evaluate that stuff. Um, you know, th- this is, it's cliche to say this, right. But, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of all in this, like, uh, a marathon of sprints, series of series of sprints yeah. here, right. It's not, it's not a single sprint that we're, we're going after. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point that there's a, that there's obvious like longitudinal multiplicative data at play like in that uh like doubling your conversion rate for next month seems great but like over a two-year over a two-year uh time plan doing that versus like knocking 20 percent off churn might actually like it might not be the smart thing to do or certainly like not the smart order in which to do them it's a it's a non-obvious point i mean to some degree i think it's obvious you know when most people like they come up with their project plan they, they think they think of maybe we think of what we can do or how long each thing will take but I don't think they're actually thinking about the benefits of time stamping each of the returns they'll get. Yeah, it's really, it's really. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, like this isn't this isn't growth. It just isn't a science. There's there's some art in here, right? Like you can never look at a perfect you know quantitative model and have the answer you know staring at you or anything. Like you gotta, you you really gotta evaluate these situate like these priorities from multiple perspectives because they're they all aren't created equally, right? Like, like to your original question, what are other mistakes? Is I find that people heavily underestimate um, the uh, the depreciation of a particular like tactic or area, right? So, like we might, like you said, like maybe we focus uh, doubling conversion rates uh, on you know some landing pages. Well, I guarantee you those can those tactics they fatigue over time, right? Every 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 tactic has a life cycle and fatigues over time, right? And and some things have shorter life cycles than others, right? And so the deeper in the funnel that you go, like in retention and stuff, those things tend to have longer life cycles. And and so you've got to kind of take that into account. And the only way you kind of take that into account is like, how do you look at this thing uh, over the course of um, a longer time horizon than just what's staring at you in the face, you know, in the next couple months. Right. An interesting thing that occurs to me though is like, you're saying if you go deeper into the funnel, like the the tactics tend to have like uh, they tend to pay off uh, they tend to decay much slower i think a lot of that in my head like it comes back to like what's what's meaningful work and what's probably sort of more like superficial or surface level work uh, is there danger do you think in like chasing like what i would consider like meaningless growth like uh you know the sort of people who are chasing like vanity statistics or stuff that makes for a good news story i i, I think so right like i mean not not to pick on them, right? But that the hot story recently, right, is is uh, is Homejoy, right? And uh, you know they were touting like these uh, massive, you know, top of funnel growth curves in the press and stuff for the longest time, and then out of nowhere they close up shop. You know, forty million invested, right? And 
And, you know, they, you know, a lot of things that a lot of speculation to why, but, um, I, you know, if you really read into it, the real reason is that they're, they weren't retaining customers. Right. right. And, um, and so even though, uh, even though like that top level growth number looked really good for a while, um, you know, it, underneath the surface, right there, it wasn't true authentic growth because these guys weren't sticking around. Um, and, and, and there's this really vicious cycle, I think in our, in our industry, and I call it the, the wheel of meaningless growth. Right. And, uh, which is, you know, early in our life cycles, we kind of like, we do whatever we can to get press. Right. And so we tend to pick, you know, the biggest number we can out of our business, but that number tends to be a vanity metric, whether it's views or downloads or registrations or something else like that. And, um, and, and, you know, what that, and so that we do that, you, you put it in the press and you kind of like, so you're celebrating it externally and then you get caught in this trap. Well, every time you want to do that, you have to come up with a bigger and bigger number. And so all of a sudden you find yourself focusing on like this meaningless number. Um, and, uh, and you just, you kind of like really follow your, you know, like you follow in, into a real trap, a company that's done amazing at avoiding this is, is actually Facebook, right? Like almost since the earliest days, they've always reported on active users, right? Right. Uh, and, uh, and, and that, that definition of active users not only included like how many new people they were acquiring, but how many people they were retaining as well, sort of over time. And so, um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, you can be really dangerous. You set the, you set the wrong metric for people to go after and, uh, um, and you can end up, you can end up really in a, in a situation that you don't want to be in. You know, it's easy to see how that happens as well. Cause he, I, I talk to like lots of young companies and like they, uh, they don't want to give away any of the real data. And like, almost like this is, it's almost exactly by definition. They don't want to give away any meaningful data because they don't want to give out early signaling to competitors or investors or whoever. So by almost by definition, if they won't give away meaningful data, what they're going to give away is meaningless data. And <laughs> then they're going to be like held to them. And next thing they find themselves like following these metrics down a chasm of like, well, we need to boost number of app downloads or whatever. Like, and they can't, you know, they're, they can't just stop reporting on it because then it'll sound like even that's a news story. Ooh, they're not even reporting how many app downloads they get anymore. It must be really bad. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, when you talk about like, uh, you know, going for like meaningful growth and you, you're speaking, speaking earlier about like picking out different ideas or, or different projects or whatever. What's the best source for coming up with these projects? Like, is it like, is it the data or is it intuition or is it look or what is it? Yeah, I don't think it's like one thing. Like I think, uh, um, I, so we draw ideas, um, from a lot of different places and we have kind of set exercises on our teams that we, we use to generate those ideas. But at the end of the day, how those ideas kind of come about or how they're informed is kind of really blending a few different things. Um, uh, it's quantitative information, qualitative information, and our, a little bit of our own insight. And um, you always have to blend those three things because um, if you just look at one of them, they don't tell you the whole story, right? Quantitative information is really good at telling us what's going on. Um, uh, uh, but it only tells us a little, a little bit of the why. And that's where qualitative information comes in is like, you can really get a little bit better on the why from, from really talking to their users and gathering other qualitative information. But even those two things combined, don't tell you the whole story customer, like the, the cliche saying is like, customers aren't gonna, um, tell you exactly what feature you need to build, right? You need to, 
you need to interpret it using your own insight and your own vision. And, and I think that's very much true. And so a good example of this is we were working on our onboarding, like our, our activation rate for a tool called uh, Sidekick. And it's this email tool where you basically install a browser extension or an Outlook plugin, um, and it adds all of these features to your email that those clients already don't have. And so um, we had like basically, uh, or sorry, we weren't working on, we were working on first week retention. And so we, we were looking, we gathered all of this quantitative data to look at, you know, all the steps and sort of what have influenced that first week retention. We found this like big group of users that were only using the product with one email uh, uh, and those were the, and then quit. And those were the users that were really churning and that didn't make sense to us. And so then we switched to the qualitative information. We pulled the list of those users, right. Um, and we, we sent them like uh, one-on-one emails asking them, you know, why they decided not to use the product. And we got a bunch of responses back, categorized them, looked at the language, looked at how they were describing the problem. And a big thing that they were saying is, well, you know, I just, uh, uh, like, I just didn't have, time to, un- I didn't have time to figure it out. And that made, that was really confusing to us because once you have this thing installed in your email, you just have to start sending emails. You don't have, there's nothing to figure out. Um, and so then that's when we moved to like our, like just drawing on our own insight. And, and what we realized was that on our landing pages, we talked about an email product in our onboarding, we had you install this email product. And then the first page that you landed on wasn't in your email. It was actually within our web application, right? And so there was this huge disconnect and it was, it was why they were saying, well, I didn't, I don't have time for this to figure this out. Cause they thought they had to figure out the web app, um, not just go to their email. And so we designed a really quick test and we basically at the end of the onboarding process, we wouldn't even let them in the web app. We just basically gave them a screen that said, go to your email and start sending emails. Uh, with a link to their email and it worked right uh, but we would have never figured that out if we wouldn't have combined all three of those pieces of information that makes sense i mean it's a it, it sort of speaks a little bit to your earlier comment about it being not just a science but also an art too right yeah and, it, and like that's that's hard right because people you know uh when, when you think about hiring for these teams right um people tend to really fall on one end of the spectrum or the other it's it's very rare to find people who are really good uh, sort of at both. And so you really have to make sure you have sort of that, that blending of creativeness as well as, uh, um, a very, uh, firm understanding and look at like quantitative and qualitative information. When I, um, I mean, we, we've talked about how a couple of, uh, you know, how other people's tactics don't necessarily work for you and how to, or maybe chasing down one particular, uh, tactic is probably not the right approach. One thing I'm curious about is when you see a company that's growing insanely fast, like today, for example, it's like a Zenefits or a Slack, or is there, like, what can you learn from other fast growing companies? On the outside, not much. <laughs> I think, uh, um, you know, it's, you know, we always try to, we look at the, we fall in love with the outliers, you know, and, right. and, uh, in, uh, a lot of time, the outliers aren't the best people to learn from because um, it might have just been like uh, um, uh, like uh, everything requires a little bit of luck, but maybe it required more luck in this stance or they just hit the right timing and stuff. I really like to look at the people who who had to like fight their way through it, you know, to get to success. Right. And because you can ask them a lot of questions about how they went about, uh, you know, saw, identifying the problems 
come, you know, coming up with solutions to the problems, implementing those problems, right? It's all the stuff that kind of leads up to that inflection in the growth curve, all those little things that they did and they learned and how they learned them, where I think you can gain a lot of learnings. And then all of the things they did afterwards to kind of sustain that momentum. Um, but there's always outliers out there that just hit something at the right time, at the right chord, and they just sort of and they just sort of take off. And I'm not saying all of these outliers are just due to pure luck. A lot of it is due to other things. It's just it's really hard to learn about those things from the outside, from from their blog or just looking at their product or just the press. Like if you are going to try to learn something from them, you got to dig deep. You got to you got to talk to people at that team and really focus on the underlying fundamentals and the things that they went through uh, and learn to sort of achieve that growth. Not not just trying to figure out like what is that one thing they did to uh, on the, at that inflection point of their growth curve. Right. I mean, that's a really uh, interesting and pretty fresh take. That uh, I think it's also true that there's a it's when a company is growing pretty fast, it's really easy to misattribute. Uh, there's two things people do wrong. I think they think they misattribute to success. They're like, oh, they're popular because they did X, and then the other thing they do is like, oh, uh, like you know, we, we we should copy their support or their marketing or their sales or whatever because they're successful. When you don't realize that, like you know, the two things might actually be pretty much decoupled internally. Yeah, and I actually that's why I like a lot of the content that you guys are putting out. I, I like the stuff that you put out on how your product team operates. It's much more about those underlying things that sort of educate that process and methodology for you guys rather than, you know, what it's all the inputs rather than the outputs. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's a, it's an interesting philosophy. Like to think about things you actually can learn from other companies. It's, it's, it is kind of analyzing the ingredients much more than the final out. Cause I mean, in every product, there is some like internal, like they actually, the guts of the idea, whether it is like, you know, uh, workplace chat or whether it's communications platform for web business or whatever, like that bit is, has its own, that bit brings its own, you know, standard sort of growth trajectory and virality and all these things to the party. But it's, it's way more interesting to look at the things that are layered on top of it rather than to like sort of post-rationalize the success of the, the idea itself onto all the tactics that follow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for our audience who say like who like you know a lot of uh, growth stage or on some early stage companies who've like yet to build out a growth team what uh, what's a good sort of first step towards doing this is it is it put one person on it is it like you know make it a part of the product team's responsibility how do you get started I yeah I think I mean there's a few things there's a few recommendations I have is like go into it uh, um, you know with the mentality that this is going to be a team not a person right um and because, uh, you know, solving these types of problems, these growth problems, it really requires a mixture of, uh, of engineering, product, design, and, and sort of marketing skill sets, right? And uh, it's almost impossible to find that all in one person. There's only so much that one person can do. And so I see a lot of companies setting their growth efforts up for failure because they kind of read all of this stuff and it's like, ah, oh, I should be doing this. Uh you know, you, Jack Miller over there, you're now our designated growth hacker, go growth hack, right? Like that's just, that's just a recipe for failure. And, um, and so, uh, I'm not saying that you've got to have like a team of four or five, right? Like it could be a team of initially a team of, uh, two to three, as long as 
you've got all those skill sets represented in some way, shape, or form in that little small team. So the first thing is take a team mindset to this. I think the second thing is, as we talked about, like looping back to the first question is there's very different, there's very many flavors of this. And so you have to think about things like, you know, projects and ownership lines uh, and like team and org structure, things like is growth going to be its own thing or is it part of product, right? Like some of these key questions. Uh, But my recommendation is um, no matter what, a couple things. One is like this has to have, you know, top level support, CEO support, because to implement this, it once again, it's a new methodology. It's like a new process. And, and so, uh, there is going to be inevitable friction in things that you guys need to figure out as an org. And it's too easy. If you hit that friction for people to just say, throw their hands up and be like, ah, we're going back to what we know, the, like the old way. Right. Uh, and so you really need some like that mandated support. The number two is you need to educate across all of the executives, not, you know, if you've got, if you're going to bring in like a, a like a, a growth leader that reports to the CEO, you need education and some buy-in from the VP of product and the VP of marketing and the VP of engineering, and, and open that dialogue of like how we're going, how we're thinking about developing this over time, and once again, like all those things, uh, like uh, ownership lines, in, in, um, in a, you know, in a few other things. And then number three is is start with you know, you know find ways to get early wins, right? Like going back to that low hanging fruit conversation is that if there is any sort of like skepticism across the model or this team format or whatever is you spend some time on figuring out where the highest impact area is given like the skill sets and the resources you have and, and get some really early wins and show those wins through data, right? Like nobody can really argue. It's very hard to argue with data. And so you want to basically spread those those learnings and those results across the organization because that'll help things uh, um, get even better as you kind of as the growth team grows and and, and sort of starts to take on more things. Um, so those are probably the top three recommendations I have um, uh, on a right. long list. <laughs> and, and do you think there's a, a right time? I mean, is it like is it before product market fit? Is is there after product market fit? Is there a specific time when you think it, it's going to be like? there's a right time to onboard it or does it make sense all the way through? Yeah. I mean, I think the perfect time is, is you've got some really solid data around product market fit. And to me, the most solid data you can have is that you've got a, uh, um, a somewhat meaningful amount of users or customers that look like they're retaining very well, right? Like, like retention is the key there. Uh, and, and so the perfect time is, is kind of right after that is like, there's definitely data around clear product market fit, and you need to start formalizing um, uh, basically the growth model and the growth strategy, right? And um, that's really the perfect time. Anytime before that, you're probably in a small enough company where kind of everybody needs to think about growth to some perspective, right? Um, or they need to think about this balance between traction and and improving out that product market fit, because part of proving out product. You can't just build a product and, 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 uh, to come to product market fit is like, you need to have a certain flow of users and a certain amount of growth to get that data around product market fit. And so typically at those points, you, 
you've got you've got a sense where everybody is responsible for growth in some perspective but even then you probably still want one person who kind of is thinking about it full time right like they're right. they're trying to understand it it's, it's their full time but but that's not before product market fit is not the right time to bring in an entire team it's definitely after product market fit and ideally in that stage like i talked about if you get too far uh past that stage I think it gets really hard to implement a growth team. Like in a very mature company, there's too much culture. There's too many like uh, the, the machine and the playbooks are so developed and so built that it's very hard to implement, uh, um, you know, this kind of like a, a whole new men, 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 uh, methodology and process and stuff into that mix. So that ideal time, once again, is is probably in that uh um, it, like right after some clear product market fit data, which you're starting to formalize the growth model. And I think in, in funding terms, right, for, for startups out there, that's typically around the Series B point, end of Series A, beginning of Series B. That's typically where that's at. But um, it, it depends. It really depends. Well, this has been a really, really fascinating conversation. How can our listeners keep in contact with you? I know you publish a lot. Um, yeah, so most of my, uh, pretty much all of my writing is on my site at uh, coelevate.com, or you can just Google my name and uh, that site will come up. Um, just go there. And then if anybody's interested, uh, an awesome other growth person, Andrew Chen, and I are co hosting a uh, eight week uh, lecture series in, in the fall here on uh, going a lot of in depth on this course. And there's a bunch of information on my site there. So if you're interested in going deeper, we'd love to see you sign up for that and, and hopefully be a part of it. Excellent. Well, we'll include all those links in the show notes. Thanks so much for your time today, Brian. It's been really, really helpful. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io.